Good morning, everybody. Good to see you and be with you. It's been a lot going on this weekend. Some people look as though they've been to a Maggie Rogers concert. Not sure if that's the case. Maybe a Peter Legrand concert. Anyone been to that one? There's so much happening this weekend. Some people went to a wedding, I think. Let's just name all the things that you all did just at once. No, let's not. Um, welcome. It's good to see you and be with you again. As I said, my name is Nelson and uh, one of the pastors here. Uh, grateful to be in week two of our uh, series in Acts, our new series. And I want to just offer this morning, before we get to the texts of the morning, um, a brief recap of the why of the series. Last week, I mentioned three key words um, that help us to remember why, why are we going through the book of Acts. One word, scripture, another spirit, and the other seasons. So one is that we want to maintain in all of our teaching a commitment to scripture. So not only teaching that is based on scripture, but actually preaching through particular books of the Bible and to seek to do so faithfully and with the illumination of the Spirit's help, which brings me to the second reason, Spirit. So to continue to lean in to our dependency on the Holy Spirit, uh, we spent a, a number of months, maybe even over a year, looking at the theme of the river and this being a symbol of uh, God's life in us and through us and flowing through us. And so this is a chance to explore what God's Spirit did through a particular group of Jesus followers and to, uh, to lean in to, toward that and into our own dependency on that same spirit. Seasons. And this kind of brings us to the, we're, we're about to be uh, 10 years old. Our 10th birthday is right around the corner as a church community. And so to ask then, as we look at this book together, what God may want to do in and through us as we both celebrate 10 years and turn the corner into a new decade. The story isn't finished yet, of course. And so we believe that God is still writing that story. Now, what is the book of Acts itself about, again? I, I tried to address this question in some detail last week, so if you're planning to be around for this series or beyond today at all, I'd suggest checking out the podcast of that intro sermon from last Sunday. But in short, let me offer this. Very first book, or first verse, pardon me, of the book of Acts says this. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. This is Luke writing. He's writing to someone called Theophilus, which means God loves or God lover. And so this is the second of a two-part work. It's Luke's first book, of course, being what Jesus began to do and teach, his gospel. And now this part is all about what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach through the apostles and in the power of the Spirit. I love Eugene Peterson's words when he says, the story of Jesus doesn't end with Jesus. It continues in the lives of those who believe in him. The supernatural does not stop with Jesus. Luke makes it clear that these Christians he wrote about were no more a spectator of Jesus than Jesus was a spectator of God. They are in on the action of God, God acting in them, God living in them, which also means, of course, in us. And so Jesus is at the center, which is where he remains today as the story continues to be told in and through us by the power of the Spirit. We get to be in on the center of the action. I love how Rachel, Rachel Held Evans put it. She said, we live inside an unfinished story. We live inside an unfinished story. So let's pray together, ask for God's help in these things as we seek to open up this book together and to find our place in this unfinished story that we've been invited into. 
God, Father, Son, Spirit, you have already visited us uh, through your presence, through the songs we've been singing, through the scripture read, through this moment of marking transition of some of our uh, junior youth, our junior, um, yeah, moving into a new phase in their life. With us as a community, I thank you, God, for these children. Thank you for this community. Thank you for this season that we, in, that we are in now. We ask, God, that you would open our hearts and minds, our imaginations, fill us with your life, fill us with your presence as we open the scriptures. Illumine for us, draw our attention uh, to that which we need to hear and to follow. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so our text this morning, if you have a chair Bible close by, I trust that you do, and, or perhaps you brought your own, um, you're welcome to turn there to Acts chapter 1 and verse 15. The page number is up here on the screen, and let's read this text together. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akaldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven Apostles, initial thoughts? Kind of weird, right? Um, when I'm getting ready to go to a church gathering, I don't usually think that I need to prepare myself to hear about spilled intestines and fields of blood. Scripture can be graphic. Besides that, though, kind of boring, right? Kind of weird and kind of boring. I mean, you flip over to the next chapter, which Steph gets to preach on next week. Holy Spirit wind, strange languages, tongues of fire, acts to people. This is where the action is. On top of that, as far as I know, it's the only specific chapter in the whole of Scripture after which a sweet Christian band was named. How many of you heard of the second chapter of Acts? Anyone with me on the second chapter of Acts? There they are in all their 1974 glory. They're all siblings, and they were amazing. They were basically the Christian version of ABBA. If you've never heard Easter song, get up on the YouTubes and make that happen. Prepare to have your mind blown. But I digress. And that is all the thunder I want to steal from Acts 2. The fact remains, we're still in Acts chapter 1. So this is me just 
backpedaling and getting back into Acts chapter 1 and this weird text that I've just read for us, I know I needed to figure out what in the world I'm going to say about this sort of gross and sort of unexciting text. The truth is, beneath the, the gore and the boredom, I was delighted, not to mention relieved, to discover there's more going on here than seems apparent on the surface. So what's actually happening is that the apostles, the leaders of this fledgling church, are realizing they have a problem. And it's a bigger one than most of us as 21st century North Americans would immediately pick up on. So here they were in their upstairs room in Jerusalem. They're at the leading edge of God, Jesus' plan to bring renewal and restoration to the people of God. And they were supposed to be 12 of them. There were only 11. So remember the story. When God originally singled out the Israelites to be a light to the nations, how many tribes were there? There were 12. And now on the brink of the new Israel, about to be formed, which would contain representatives from every nation and tongue, there were also meant to be 12 apostles. So how were they expected to demonstrate and to symbolize God's plan for Israel and therefore the rest of the world if they were, as one writer put it, one patriarch short of a true Israel? Did they just have to stay like that? And if not, what were they supposed to do about it? So that's the question that frames this text. Again, without context, this doesn't seem like that big a deal. But to these early followers who knew they were meant to embody the continuity of Israel's history, it was the elephant in the room. Not unlike heading into the Super Bowl without a full roster. They didn't know what to do, at least not initially, and not precisely. They did know some things, though. Let's back up to the final verse from last week, verse 14. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. One thing they knew to do was to pray. And Luke tells us they did so constantly and together. And it was in the context of prayer that direction began to emerge. A small shaft of light was shed on their situation, some instruction. And this was a light that arose from Scripture. So for them, the Jewish Bible, what we refer to as the Old Testament, wasn't just a record of what God said to their ancestors. It was a massive story. It was an essential story. It was the story of the earlier phase of God's intentions, it was a story full of signposts pointing to a future time when the plans God had been curating would be fully realized. And among the many who had been living inside this story for centuries were prophets and kings who were attuned to the Spirit of God. And so as they listened to what the Spirit said to them, they wrote those things down. And those writings became like seeds sown into the dark soil, and having been watered faithfully, they would eventually break through the surface of the earth as plants that would bear fruit. So here we have some of the earliest followers of Jesus, post-ascension, practicing his way by giving themselves to a life of constant prayer. And at some point... Those three words in those days of verse 15 are vague enough to suggest that this could have happened any time between the Ascension and Pentecost. At some point then, they're praying scripture. They're praying the Psalms. 
And they come across a couple of psalms in particular, the ones that spoke, as several psalms do, of a time when God's people would be resisted by a traitor from inside their circle. A time when God's true king would be betrayed by one who had been a close friend and a co-worker. They're praying, they're searching the scriptures, and the elephant in the room begins to loom larger. The scriptures seem to be speaking to a part of the story that they're living right now. There's this immediacy that the Spirit is uncovering among them. So they lean in. They pay closer attention. What did that verse say again? And in those Psalms, they find not a roadmap for their precise location. Scripture rarely offers exactly that. But rather, they receive hints and clues and impressions, enough light to help them see how they might feel their way forward through this problem they were encountering for the first time. And so, the one called Peter stands up and gives voice to their discerning. He said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled, in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David. Skip to verse 24. Said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. So this is what their praying of the Psalms made clear for them. Not only is it okay for someone else to replace the one who is gone, it's in fact the right thing to do. What it doesn't mean then is that God's plan or their adherence to it has gone horribly off course. So that must have been a relief to them. The tragic heartbreak of Judas' betrayal is somehow held within the strange and dark and all-encompassing purpose of God. It's a good time for us to remember how massive a theme that is within this larger story. That of God's plan overriding complex and problematic circumstances. So given what's going on in our text, which I hope we're beginning to see is not just gross and boring, it seems really important to Luke that we get this. That even though things are sad and bleak and hard and everything seems lost, God is still at work. So to these early apostles, Judas defecting must have felt like a deep wound. He'd been their friend. Until a few short weeks prior, he'd been one of them in every way possible. They'd known him intimately, and he them. But in time, they found their way to this fresh hopefulness. They recognized the universal truth that new life begins in the dark. How? Again, through scripture, and through prayer, they remembered the story they were living in. They remembered it was an unfinished story, that they still had a part to play. And that by seeking direction from the story's author, whose spirit was very much alive and about to be unleashed in a dramatic way, they would find enough light to turn the page. So by the way, if you're not quite convinced that this theme is a big deal, look at verse 15 again and notice who was giving leadership to this discernment process. Peter. Remember his backstory? Let's spend a few moments remembering Peter's backstory, recalling who Peter was, and we're going to get some help from Frederick Buechner. He's one of my favorite writers. And this is from his book, Peculiar Treasures, and it was later reprinted in Beyond Words. In case you want to take this down, those images are up there. Here's what he says about Peter. Everybody knows that he started out as a fisherman. He lived with his wife in Capernaum, where they shared a house with his mother-in-law and his brother Andrew. 
He and Andrew had their own boat and were in business with a couple of partners named James and John, Zebedee's sons. The first time Jesus laid eyes on him, he took one good look and said, So you're Simon, the son of John. And then said that from then on he'd call him Cephas, which is Aramaic for Peter, which is Greek for rock. A rock isn't the prettiest thing in creation or the fanciest or the smartest. And if it gets rolling in the wrong direction, watch out. But there's no nonsense about a rock. And once it settles down, it's pretty much there to stay. There's not a lot you can do to change a rock or crack it or get, its un get under its skin. And barring earthquakes, you can depend on it about as much as you can depend on anything. So Jesus called him the rock, and it stuck with him the rest of his life. Peter, the rock. He could stop fishing for fish, Jesus told him. He'd been promoted. From there on out, people were to be his business. Now he could start fishing for them. It's a lot more to the story of Peter, of course, but the episode I want to draw our attention to was in the last days before Jesus' death. Beekner continues. At their last supper, Jesus said he would have to be going soon. And because Peter didn't get what he meant or couldn't face it, he asked about it. And Jesus explained what he meant was that he was going where nobody on earth could follow him. Peter finally got the point then and asked why he couldn't follow. I'll lay down my life for you, he said. And then Jesus said to him the hardest thing Peter had ever heard him say. Listen, listen, he said. The cock won't crow till you've betrayed me three times. And that's the way it was, of course. Peter sitting out there in the high priest's courtyard, keeping warm by the fire, while inside, the ghastly interrogation was in process. And then the girl coming up to ask him three times if he wasn't one of them, and his replying each time that he didn't know what in God's name she was talking about. And then the old cock swaddles, trembling scarlet, as up over the horizon it squawked the rising sun and the tears running down Peter's face like rain down a rock. According to Paul, the first person Jesus came back to see after Easter morning was Peter. What he said and what Peter said, nobody will ever know, and maybe that's just as well. But their last conversation on this earth, however, is reported in the Gospel of John. It was on the beach at daybreak. Some of the other disciples were there, and Jesus cooked them breakfast. When it was over, he said to Peter only again, he called him Simon, son of John, because if he ever meant business, this was it. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said he did. Then Jesus asked the same question, second time, and then once again. And each time, Peter said he loved him, three times in all, to make up for the other three times. And Jesus said, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And you get the feeling that this time, Peter didn't miss the point. How do we know? Because here he is, Peter, the denier, fully reinstated, back in the starting lineup, in the role of quarterback, no less. And he's leading the early believers as they constantly huddle together in prayer. This is the scandal of grace. That one word, Peter, 
at this point in the narrative, it's shocking how liberally Jesus hands out grace. So let me just say, if you're here this morning and you've been a betrayer or you've been a denier, if you feel like you've done something or you've said something or you've lived in such a way that now you think of yourself as disqualified or you're inadequate, you're forgotten, you're beyond mercy, or God isn't interested in your particular uniqueness, your mix of gifts, your abilities, Jesus sees you differently. For one thing, the list of qualifications in his kingdom economy is so much different than we think. What did Peter's resume look like? Fisherman, which in Jewish culture was basically another way of saying he didn't have what it takes to study with a rabbi. So they mercifully at some point just cut him loose. Go, like, be a fisherman. Be better for you that way. And along comes a rabbi actually looking for followers, which is something first century rabbis didn't do. If you want to study with the next level Torah, it's up to you to seek out a teacher. So not only is Jesus seeking out his own students, he's doing it in a place other rabbis wouldn't dream of looking, on the seashore, among fishermen, among the riffraff, among the nobodies. Friends, God lovers, may you never underestimate God's ability to renew and restore nor God's desire to do so. This is what we find God doing again and again and again. I want to share a short poem with you. This is from Lucy Shaw, and it's called Judas Peter. Because we are all betrayers, taking body and blood and asking guilty, is it I, and hearing him say yes, it would be simple for us all to rush out and hang ourselves. But if we find grace to cry and wait, after the voice of mourning has grow, crowed in our ears clearly enough to break our hearts, he will be there to ask us each again, do you love me? Friends, at the center of the unfinished story that we're invited to live into, we find a Jesus who continues to renew, renew and to restore and to reinstate. Are you with me? This is good news. Okay, let's come back to Peter's speech. And the task at hand in this early part of Acts, verse 21, Peter's continuing his speech. He's quoted the Psalms. He says, therefore, it's necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up for us from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So here they're getting specific about exactly who should replace Judas as part of the 12. And a couple of essential requirements occur to Peter. First, he said, it's got to be someone who's been with us the whole time. From when Jesus was baptized through his ascension. These were the foundation 12, after all. The ones responsible to safeguard this true tradition about what Jesus was on about. And the second reason follows close on the heels of the first. It needed to be someone who witnessed the resurrection with them firsthand. To have seen the risen Lord was in their minds crucial. And that's why Paul was later added as one of them. 
The resurrection, right from the start, was held as the divine vindication of Jesus' life and Jesus' work. It was the exclamation mark on all he said and did and claimed to be. So what did these requirements reveal? Mainly this, that the apostles saw their main task as bearing witness to the resurrection of Jesus himself. It's their main task. It shows up repeatedly. Repeatedly, Acts 4, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. 13, when they had carried out all that was written about him, that is Jesus, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. As we'll see, if you take away the resurrection from Acts, you're left with little else. N.T. Wright says it well. The resurrection defines the church. From that day to this, the church is either the movement which announces God's new creation, or it is just another irrelevant religious sect. So they draw up a short list of two, and they choose Matthias. Or, as they would put it, God chose Matthias. Now, um, if you paid close attention to the last couple of verses there, you might be among those who are wondering just how divinely led the process of casting lots could possibly be. It's essentially like drawing straws or like flipping a coin. Some think this was pretty arbitrary. They suggest that if the choice had been delayed until, say, the day after Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was arrived with gusto, they might have done it differently. Well, Luke doesn't seem to think so. And here's why. And this is possibly the main theme in our text. Tom Wright again. Part of Luke's point is precisely to show how from the beginning the apostles did what they did in light of the scriptures and in the context of prayer. There are those practices again. Verse 24. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen. The opening sentence of their prayer is what Luke wants us not to miss. Lord, you know everyone's heart. Why is it up to God to make the choice? Because we're talking about a role, we're talking about a task where the posture and the trajectory of one's heart matters. A whole lot. Another part of Luke's point is to reveal what the Gospels go on to do, or that what the Apostles go on to do, in fact, the restoration of the kingdom to Israel, which they had been asking Jesus about. That was the unfinished story that they were living into, even though it looked nothing like what they or anyone else at the time thought it would look like. And for that, they needed the powerful symbol of the Twelve to be restored. Have you ever thought about the guy who wasn't chosen? Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice. I sometimes feel bad for Brother Justice. Not to mention Curious. Like, was he in the room when they drew the straws? And he actually, like, came up short? Like, how awkward would that have been? Now, Luke gives us nothing to indicate that his heart wasn't in the right place or he was somehow unfit for the task. He was on their short list of two. The 11 would have trusted him. So we don't know what happened to him. We don't even know what happened to Matthias either, for that matter. What we do know, and what I think we might be being called to remember, is in considering this candidate who wasn't chosen, is that part of following Jesus right from the start is about being content to play great parts without pride 
and small parts without shame. The roles and the tasks assigned to us are ultimately God's business. They're not ours. So whatever we're given to do, whomever we're called to be, we need to be willing to say with John the Baptist, he must become greater, I must become less. I want to move toward some kind of response to this strange little passage. In a way, again, it's a bit of a calm before the storm of Acts chapter 2, but I want to return to this overarching theme of living inside an unfinished story, more, more specifically, what it means to live inside that story, what it may require of us. So there are a few things that arise explicitly from our text that I want to make sure we don't miss, scripture and prayer being the two big ones. Now, I don't know what those two words stir up for you. If church has been a hard or even a traumatic place for you in the past, it could be scripture and prayer are two things that, that cause some angst in the deep places of who you are. It could be you need some inner work, some healing around this. And that might need to start with you just simply sharing your story with someone. We want to be a safe place as a community for you in these places. Please reach out. But when I say that scripture and prayer are integral to these early apostles' practices, I don't mean this in a reductionist sense that you may have heard elsewhere. I'm not standing here saying simply, read your Bible and pray. Scripture and prayer are central, but the how is just as important as the what. For these early followers of Jesus, they understood they were custodians of a story that was bigger than themselves. They were to be witnesses stewards, bearers of this true tradition regarding Christ. And because that was true, they took on a primary posture as listeners and receivers. Understanding their history through the sacred text that had been handed down to them, they opened the scriptures, not just to fill their heads with knowledge or to memorize information, to tick their boxes of belief, but to practice a living faith. In other words, scripture and prayer went hand in hand. Praying the scriptures, letting scripture inform their prayers. In this case, they opened up the Psalms, and they waited together, and they discerned with the Spirit's help that they were being invited to take a particular place in the action. So I want to ask us this question. How might we also engage scripture and prayer in such a way as to live inside the unfinished story that surrounds us? How might we also engage scripture and prayer in such a way as to live inside the unfinished story that surrounds us? As we, as we move toward an end today, I wanna to approach this from another angle. So this week, I asked a few actor friends to respond to this question. What does it take to live inside a story? So I wanna share some of their responses with you, and as you listen, a bit of an experiment here. Invite the spirit to take a highlighter pen and bring out a phrase or two that might spark a connection between how this happens on a stage and how it might happen in your life as someone who's seeking to be a storyteller, a follower of Jesus. Does that make sense? So listen to these reflections. Invite the spirit to make connections for you. One person said this, what does it take to live inside a story? 
It means being willing to live a character's experience without judgment. It means finding the truth of every moment and to stop making it about me. It means letting go of myself and giving myself to another person's writing. It means having an audience that can share and witness in stories. Another said, an understanding of your history. As an actor, I try to fill in a lot of backstory for my character. This informs how I might feel in the scene I'm in. Actors also learn to create something called the moment before, to imagine what just happened before this scene I'm about to do. What feelings, therefore, am I carrying into this current interaction? A sense of history infuses the present with depth and meaning. Another said, as an actor, the key to a solid performance seems to be learning how to put in the work, developing character, setting intentions, and building relationships and then stepping onto the stage, letting go of preparation, control, simply trusting in the present moment. That's when the magic happens, kind of like life. Another, who is in the midst of actually opening a show this week, she said, watching the actors tonight, I was once again amazed at what magicians they are. Actors are geniuses of the heart. They offer their own bodies, minds, and beings in service to a story. Tonight, one actor in particular dropped in to their role. They were present. They were listening. A common note in rehearsal will be to listen to each other. That is actually here, what the other actor is saying to you and respond instead of just anticipating what they'll say or not even hearing them at all. This is often a missing component in performance, and it really can be just that simple. Listen. Another said, being present with your scene partner. If you aren't actually responding to each other in real time, the scene becomes stale. It doesn't spark and vibrate with the life that the best theater does. You may be able to fool most of your audience, but you, the actor, know what you're doing is empty. When I'm authentically in the moment in a scene, when the emotions are real, that's the best feeling as an actor. To me, that's one of the ways I feel most alive. When I can't find that life, when a scene feels inauthentic, it's one of the worst. Another said, whenever I watch an actor do a really good job of entering into a story or really giving themselves to a role, it's always impressed upon me how noble it is. I felt in the same way about many of the helping professions. Our midwives, those who care for the sick, the elderly, disabled. They purposefully and fully enter into another story, give themselves over to it to empathize, to understand, to feel it for themselves. A really good actor asks themselves, what if? What if I were that person experiencing that thing? When a good actor can fully enter in that way, it's amazing. There's a nobility to carrying another story like that. A few of the actors responded specifically to the unfinished story aspect from the point of view of improvisation. So let's just keep listening, just a few more, to these words and to the spirit together. This one's on video. So living inside an unfinished story um, in improv can be really scary. Um, it can be anxiety-inducing and push you into um, the 
fear sort of part of your brain, the lizard part of your brain, you're overthinking everything, you're judging things while you're in it. Um, moments of it that I remember even being really bad is almost this sense of like tunnel hearing. Um, it's almost like time is slowing down and people and like your scene partners sound like and it takes like a lot of courage to just like shake that off and be joyful and be present and ground yourself and hear everything that your scene partner is offering you, not just verbally, um, but physically and um, lean into that discomfort. And that's where the magic happens. Another improviser said, it means feeling liberated that I can be myself and have permission to fail. It means excitement that the story can go anywhere and I'm contributing to it. It means trusting those on my team to take the lead sometimes when I don't know how to. Lastly, from an improv perspective, I always see the story as open and waiting. I remember someone saying somewhere along the way in my learning that when you're in a scene, everything you need is in your partner. So you're never alone. It's never just up to you to accomplish everything. You need to listen, yield, be bold enough to risk, offer, and give. Let's pray. Lord, you know everyone's heart. You know where we've been. You know the counter story that each of us brings, even into this space and even into this moment. You know how we hear your word. You know how we're entering this season. You know how we're coming into this particular space this morning, perhaps some for the first, second, or third time in a long while or perhaps ever. You know the hearts of those of us who have been around a lot longer. Maybe there's softness, maybe there's callousness. We ask for your spirit like water to flow in us and in this place, to give us fresh courage, fresh desire to live this story that has embraced us. We thank you for the example of the early apostles who attuned themselves to your voice in scripture, the context of prayer, may we give ourselves freshly to those practices in this season, seeing ourselves as those who are living inside this story that is still being written. Thank you, God, for your mercy, which is new every morning. Thank you for reinstating Peter. And through that act, even now in this tiny, weird little text, to open that up as a fresh possibility, even for us, those of us who need renewal, restoration, reinstatement, would you meet us where we are? Fill us anew, we pray. Come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to come now to the table. This place, again, that we get to rehearse, this is part of this big story that we're living into. And every time we do this, we get to remember that part of the story. So, we have a litany that we walk through each time when we come to the table, and so I want to do that together with you now. I invite you to respond with the bold text. The gospel is the good news that God, our Father, the Creator, out of his great love for us.